may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. As we said last week, we're, uh, I asked you to go on a plane trip with me. We're looking at three different ways of going. You see, if you go on a plane trip, uh, you can do, use a commercial jet, you can do a Learjet, or you can use a Cessna. <laughs> commercial jet is up to 50,000 feet. Lear, 5 to 20,000. Then you can drop right down. Cessna is under 5. The idea is we're going to get a big picture of prophecy, and then we're going to zero right in as though we're in a small Cessna looking at the landscape. Okay? Again, the, when we were in the commercial jet... At 50,000 feet, we looked at Daniel 70 weeks, Daniel chapter 9. And as Daniel was praying and confessing his sins and the sins of his people, Israel, God through Gabriel gave Daniel the end picture for not only Israel, but for Jerusalem, his people and his city. And what we found was he gave, and again, we're not going to review all, but Basically, it, it segmented down to seven weeks. And the, by the way, the weeks were seven. So seven times seven is 49. And he's referring to years. There was going to be a 49-year period, starting with the uh, decree to rebuild, which was the decree that was given to, ne or to uh, Nehemiah. So there was going to be a 49-year period, seven weeks. And then there was going to be 62-week period, 400, what is it, 34, I think it is. There's going to be this time period, 69 weeks, or as we broke it down a couple weeks ago, 173,880 days. 173,880 days from the time that the decree was given to rebuild the wall, the city, to the very day that Jesus Christ walked into the city of Jerusalem, which we call the triumphant entry. Exactly 173,880 days. Exactly. It's one of the greatest prophecies of all Scripture. Some say it is the greatest prophecy. There's only one final seven-year period, one final week, one in what we call the 70th week of Daniel. One final seven-week or seven-year period, which is what we call the tribulation. One seven-year period left. What Daniel wasn't given is this one thing, is that when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, the clock stopped. And we've been in this pause for 2,000 plus years. 2,000 plus years, we've been waiting for that clock to start again for one final year of Daniel, which is one final week of Daniel, which is seven years. <coughs> We're waiting for it, and that's called the tribulation period. That was the overview. We've gone in a number of times, so we don't... But it all has to do with, this is very important, Israel. It all has to do with, as Daniel was told, my people and my city. My people, Israel, my city, Jerusalem. Then we got into a Learjet and dropped a little bit closer to the earth. <coughs> Wanted to get more specific on a couple things. And we started seeing world, the world's future. Actually, as we pick up in uh, Mark chapter 13, the, uh, what's happened up to this point is this. Jesus came into Jerusalem, triumphant entry on Monday. Again, it's not Sunday, it's actually Monday. Monday he comes into Jerusalem. Tuesday he cleans out the temple. Wednesday, after the temple has been prepared for him, he teaches all day there. <clears throat> all day in the temple. And he's teaching to the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the religious people in the temple. And basically what he's saying is, you are apostate, you have been rejected, everything that you, everything that you think is going to be secure is coming down. And that's what we find just a few years later, about 40 years later, even the temple came down, right? We saw that. Again, it's on Wednesday he teaches. On Thursday is where we have the upper room discourse. And then at that night he's um, betrayed. 
And then Friday, he's uh, between Thursday and Friday, the trial, the crucifixion, he dies, Saturday's in the grave, Sunday he rises from the dead. All this happens. See, this is when you get, look at your Bible, it's amazing how much of, of when you're studying the Gospels, you know, we have like almost half of it, but really it all is contained within that last final week. So again, he leaves the temple after. Uh, uh, condemning Judaism, condemning that apostate religion, because they, they no longer were Judea, was Judaism of the Old Testament. They become apostate, all the Pharisees, all the rules, you know, works righteousness, he condemned them. And, and, and you have to understand, that's why right, on Wednesday, they, they didn't like Jesus. By the time he had done all that, they hated him. They want, you know, it was only two days later, and then Judas. And why would Judas? I mean, because Judas thought, here's the king, I'm going to be part of his, the king in the kingdom. What do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean things are going to be destroyed? What do you mean it's not going to get better? You know, he had a traitor's heart. So he leaves the temple, and now he's walking down the Kidron and up Mount of Olives, Mount, Mount of Olives, where you know, they had olive trees. And as he's walking, he actually tells them some different things, because they make a comment. And we pick this up in uh, Mark chapter 13. Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what building, what buildings are here. I mean, again, you just got to kind of picture them. They're walking, around, they're walking up to the Mount of Olives, probably looking back. Remember on the eastern uh, uh, wall of the temple, it was, uh, it was overlaid in gold. They say in the morning it would blind you when the sun hit it and reflected back to you. But then, now as the sun is setting and they're looking, man, what magnificent building. Now, I'm sure in somewhat they're thinking like this, yeah, yeah, all right, they're apostate, but man, don't we have some great buildings? <laughs> and again, when you say buildings, he's all, they're all referring to the temple because the temple was more than just one. It was the main, the, the colonnades, the porticos, and all that. And they're just looking at that whole magnificent thing called Herod's Temple. It had been under construction for since around 20 BC, so some almost 50 years by this point, it would be in construction for another uh, de- couple decades. By the time it was all done, it had been in construction for 85 years. I mean, look at this thing. And look at what Jesus said in verse 2, and he said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And exactly what you would expect someone who is the Son of God, God Himself, would say, you're going to expect it to come true completely right, accurate, right? I mean, it should come like not one stone upon another. Really, Jesus? No, not one stone. When it was all said and done, because of the rebellion of the Jews, the Romans came in, 70 A.D., sieged the city. I mean, literally famine and atrocities were happening. And because they set the temple on fire and there was such an intense heat, all that gold, well, where does gold go? It goes down. And so it just kept, and it all melted and got into the crevices of all the temple stones. And in order to extract it, they had to literally take those stones, which also had crumbled because of the heat, and they literally took it to extract the gold and threw it in the valley, and not one stone was left on another. The only thing that was left was the, the foundation stones that were not even considered part of the temple. Jesus spoke exact truth. That's what you would expect from God. See, Christ's ability to predict the future is another evidence of our Lord's deity. He said it exactly right. He said it precise, and it all happened exactly the way he said it. The other thing that we want to, and I'm going to keep referring back to this, the Bible always perfectly corresponds to reality. It always, the Bible, when we read the Bible, it always perfectly corresponds to reality. <coughs> Which is usually antithetical to what, the, what humanity says. Example, humanity says that we're getting better. You know what the Bible says? No, no, you're getting worse. Well, what's reality? What's well, actually how you look at it. world would say, well, look at we're getting better. Look at all the technology we have. All the cell phones we have. Question. Are we getting better morally? Are we getting better socially? Are we getting better spiritually? No. No, when the Bible speaks, it corresponds perfectly to reality. 
Always does. So again, he makes the comment, and they're walking up, and he looks back, he says, listen, not one stone is going to be left on another. How would he know? He's God. <laughs> now he gets up, and, he's, and he sits down in the Mount of Olives. You know, he's just sitting, you know, again. And you've got to, you know, imagine, you love a sunset. I love a good sunset, right? And now the sun is setting. And because of everything he's taught, now again, you've got to kind of go back and, all right, so you've condemned Judaism. You've said they're apostate. You said this temple is coming down. You said that you're the king, and we believe you are the king, the Messiah, except for Judas. All right, so, like, what's coming next? And he's already talked about his death, that he would rise in three days. So this is a very, I mean, it makes sense why they'd ask this question. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, now he's sitting, see, now he's not walking, he's sitting, and four of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, the inner core, asked him privately, apparently just drew him away, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, if you go over to Matthew 24, just... I'm only going to be there a second. In, in fact, you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Just write down 24.3. It says this, because it adds to <coughs> what was asked. Matthew 24 is actually an expanded version of, of Mark. See, like, if you want to get the whole Olivet Discourse, Olivet Discourse is his final sermon to the disciples about end times. He gives them the big picture. It's the most extensive sermon that he is going or, uh uh, discussion that he has of, of any question they've ever asked. The Olivet Discourse, you can find it in Matthew 24. That's the most extensive in Luke 21. The shortened version of this is in Mark 13. You put all those together, Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, and then you get the big picture of what he told the disciples when he was up on the Mount of Olives, sitting there with them, looking at the sunset as the, the temple is in the foreground. Okay. In Matthew 24, he says, um, verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? See, now we get more. Oh, okay. It's not just the sign, uh, when, when these things will be, but the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. See, what they're asking is, could you tell us to the end of the age? <laughs> I, we're here. You're telling us that that's apostate, that's coming down, and you're going to die and rise again. But could you tell us the big picture to the end of the age? By the way, wouldn't you like to know the big picture to the end of the age? Because your picture of the end of the age, if it's biblical, is, is opposite of what the world thinks. See, the world just thinks this is a little glitch. You know, we got a little glitch here. We got to get a new president. Oh, uh, no, we got to get a new, you know, a few new uh, prime ministers, and things will start. No, no. You want to know the end of the age? Well, Jesus gave us the end of the age. Okay. To the very end of the age, what's going to happen? Tell us, give us a, a picture. Tell us what's going to happen. In other words, what will, all the, what will this world look like leading up to the return of Jesus Christ? And quite honestly, I'm going to say this, Jesus was very pessimistic. <laughs> I think Christians have been overwhelmed too much with this optimism thing. Like, oh no, we all have to be happy and optimistic and you know, the best days are yet to come. Not if you're talking about the world. If you start looking at this, no, no. Now, again, when I say pessimistic, I'm not saying that you should be depressed. In fact, see, if you think it's supposed to get better, and as a Christian, you're supposed to be healthy and wealthy and wise, well, you're supposed to be wise, but yeah, then you're going to get depressed when those things may not happen to you. If you have a right picture and say, oh, this is what's supposed to happen, that's, then, then you can live powerfully because you say, well, that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, man, I'm hated. I'm really discouraged. Well, go to the scriptures and it says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now you walk away and say, well, no, I'm not discouraged. It's happening just like Jesus said. I'm on the right side. Right? That's how it should be. So again, we want to get the big picture, but I want you to see right from the start, this is a very pessimistic view of history. Very, very pessimistic. The world is not going to get better until Christ returns. In fact, it's going to follow the what? Second law of, uh, what is it, uh, thermodynamics? Is it where it's just, is that it? Help me out here. I didn't write it down, but I think, yeah. What's the law say? That things just keep, yeah, right, whatever that, keeps going down, basically. <laughs> okay, you get the point. 
First of all, you're going to have the deception of a multitude. If you want to characterize it, verses 5 and 6, and Jesus answered them and began to say, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive, underline, many. More will be deceived that are not, than are not deceived. Many. And last week we looked at uh, Islam. Now again, a lot of people would say, well, you know, Islam has nothing to do with Christianity. And we found out that's not true. Buddhism has nothing to do with Christianity. Hinduism has nothing to do with Christianity. But, like you know, Jehovah's Witness has something to do with Christianity. They use the word Jesus. Mormonism has, and also Islam. Why? Because when you want to get a counterfeit and you really want to deceive somebody, you want to put error right up against close to truth. When it comes to Islam, that's what they do. In Islam's eschatology, there's three great people that make up the very end of the, t- um, the days. The first of all is the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. And again, we're not going to go through it only to say this. This is Islam's savior. But if you, if you, if you put it against Ro- Revelation chapter 6, it, he fits perfectly with what the Bible calls Antichrist. The second person of Islam is what is the man named Issa, I-S-A, Issa. That's their Jesus. As I show you the picture last week, there's that whole group of uh, Islamic Muslim people following the uh, 12th Imam, and the guy that's standing right behind them, because he's not as great as the, uh, the 12th Imam, but right behind them is a caricature of our Jesus. Because they, Jesus plays a huge part in Islam. Their Jesus, and I'm saying their Jesus, not the biblical Jesus, their Jesus comes back in the very end times to convince you who are Christians that you were wrong and you need to follow Islam. That's what their theology says. If you compare their Issa, their Jesus, the Muslim Jesus to Scripture, he fits perfectly with the false prophet. And then they have a third sign, Dajjal, D-A-J-J-A-L, Dajjal. The guy that has one eye, blind in one eye, riding on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the Savior. Well, that's... Their Antichrist is the Bible's true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Islam is a complete reversal, complete reversal of everything that we believe it's the satanic counterfeit of the true trinity okay our savior is their antichrist our antichrist is their redeemer to quote them the army of satan will be led by a person who who will claim to be jesus christ (coughs) there will be a battle and the muslim jesus will fight the false i.e biblical jesus i mean it's our and will kill him that's what their theology says their Jesus defeats our Jesus. The truth is, Jesus, our Jesus, will destroy their Mahdi and Issa. And we find that in Revelation chapter 19. So again, complete reversal. Complete counterfeit. Let me just give you a couple other interesting things as we go along. You know, oh, by the way, if you want to uh, have this, I just copied 20 copies. It's in green. It even says where it came from. Excerpt from John MacArthur's message on Mark 13. See, I was listening to something John was saying when he brought it up. See, it's not in his commentary, but if you want it, it's three pages. It just gives you what, you know, what I just said. It, It basically is an excerpt of what he said. Let me say also, Dathan mentioned this in ABF. You know, you, you know that I like John MacArthur? He's not perfect, by the way. I disagree, I disagree with him in, in some areas. Really? Yeah, I can still think on my own. I'm not. But the point is, is this. He's done a lot of research. Anybody that's been in a church for 50 years having to keep preaching new messages, you have to do research, and you can't preach your same 10 messages over and over again. So the, I know that's sarcastic. Uh, the point is, is this. Do you realize that within the last five years, he opened up all his library to the public? You used to have to buy CDs and all that. Now you can just download them. 
One of the greatest ways that I have grown in my Christian life is I, an iPad, or iPod, iPod, the little guy. You know, I love my I, little iPod. You know, download 20 messages, take a trip, listen. I, John MacArthur has replaced Rush Limbaugh in my life. Can you believe that? <laughs> I used to come home and listen to Rush, you know, like, oh, I know. Thank you. I repented a number of years ago. But the point is, no, because we're talking about putting off the old, putting on the new, and I'll tell you what, you got such marvelous resources. Unfortunately, some ministries charge for their messages. What I'm trying to say is John MacArthur doesn't. You've got 40 years of messages to listen to, right? Right on free and everything else. Okay, let's move on. No, but some might say, you know, wait a second. Roman, Roman, wait. Daniel 2 talked about the, the image, you know, the gold, silver, and, and the image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw. And at the very end of the days, there was um, the revived Roman Empire. Remember? And... Uh, you know, feet of clay, uh, uh, iron, but feet of clay. And you know, isn't the end of the age going to be the revived Roman Empire? Isn't the West? Isn't the East? Interesting thought. As of today, what Rome was considered the Roman Empire, 60%, more than 60% of that, right at this present time, is under Muslim control. And if you go to Exodus, or Ezekiel 38, you have a picture of the Antichrist, you know, Gog, Magog, and it lists eight nations that will be in a coalition for the Antichrist. All eight of those are Muslim nations at this present time. So again, you see how what? You would expect that if Jesus is going to say something, that it's going to, it's going to be correct. You would think, humanity would say this, you're getting better and less deception. You know what he says? No, no, no. no. Many will be deceived. Deception will be all over the place. Now, I'm going to show you something. I don't usually do this, but I think it's worth it. To show you another side of deception. Can I please talk for a moment? Thank you. <laughs> you're, going to see, you're going to see three people at the very beginning. John Piper. And he's going to, and he's going to say how, how that if you... And I'm not going to preach it, but I'm trying to get you to... I want you to hear it. Because otherwise you're just going to say, what did he say? He's going to say, listen, if you're just giving people what they already want, that's not true salvation. Then MacArthur and then a guy named Paul Washer. Then you're going to talk and see how, I think, false. I believe false. Billy Graham, Joel Osteen, uh, Robert Schuller, some guy that's a Methodist. But the idea is this. They're smooth talkers. They don't want to, they don't want to create any ripples. You know, like everybody just love. Can't you just all love? Why do we always have to be so divisive with truth? Well, again, truth divides. So I think you'll, I think you'll find this informative. It is, by the way, eight and a half minutes long. But I just feel like you have to get the whole piece, and then we'll continue. But this is deception. Could someone shut the lights? Is, is that you see there's a lot of deception and you got to ask questions and did you did you notice that when Holstein was preaching the prosperity theology it was just prevalent right there you know abundant life to him is that you go beyond just a good marriage but you go into financial security and you have all the goodies that your best life now that should be a book he should read or write someday um, which he did Anyways, 
Acts chapter 4. Uh, let me just read one verse and then we're going to move on. I see we're almost out of time. But I can say that with even a half hour to go. <laughs> no. It says, For there is salvation, in, if, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might, must be saved. Must be saved. Okay. Let's go on. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 7. I really only, I plan on another 15 minutes, so. Mark 13, verse 7. This is the third, okay? We've seen the destruction. We've seen deception. This is the third thing that Jesus is going to say. The devastation, the devastation of the world. But when you hear of wars, notice plural, not singular. Wars, plural. So it can't just be the AD 70. That was just singular. Wars and rumors of wars do not be troubled. Luke adds the word commotions. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation, notice not just Rome, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So again, I think we can all admit that we are not evolving upward. We are devolving downward. Now yes, we have more technology, but we're not morally better spiritually better, socially better. In fact, really what the technology has done is made us made certain ones better at killing. <laughs> better at destroying the destruction of the world. And that's what Timothy says. The evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's exactly what Timothy said. God through the Word. Interesting, 95% of societies through history have engaged in war. It's always, it's always been with us. By the way, there is a day, finally, in the eternal state, there will be no war. Example, Great War of China, 36 million people died. Wow, 36 million. The Mongol conquest of the 13th century, up to 70 million died. World War I, 17 million died. World War, World War II, between 60 and 80 million died. There were so many, you know, because we're talking also Russia and all that. I mean, just war and war. And wars themselves have increased as far as the amount of them. They estimate that before Christ, there were 70 major wars. Before AD 1, 70 major wars. Between AD 1, 1 AD, to 1000 AD, <coughs> 1000 years, there was only 50 major wars. 50 major between 1000 and 1500 AD, there was 100 wars. So that's four times. Four times the amount. Because again, half the time frame, twice as many wars. Between 1500 to 1800, there was 250 wars. And between 1800 to the present, 500 wars. They're increasing. They're all over the place. Because again, of technology, being able to move, being able to get to location. Wars, wars, rumors of wars. Whereas World War II only destroyed and killed 3% of the world population, and World War II, when I say between 60 and 80, that's only 3% of the world population. And the end times, with the, the fourth, I think it's the fourth seal, it says 25% of the world population will be destroyed. With one seal judgment, 25%. Total carnage, and that, that had to do along with war. So again, what are you seeing? It's going to start like a birth pangs, but it's going to get more and more intense. And every one of these things that Jesus says to his disciples, famines and uh, pestilence and uh, signs, great signs in the heavens, all those are going to continue to increase okay, to the final time of the, of the tribulation. The second word he uses is earthquakes, and there will be earthquakes, earthquakes in various places. Luke 21, 11 says, mega quakes, great earthquakes. You know, like the nine-point quake that uh, Japan off, you know, 80 miles off of Japan experienced. The greatest quake of all times was in 1960. It was a 9.5. Now, this is how much power it had. It had 178 gigaton of power. 178 gigaton, which is like dropping a thousand atomic bombs. And yet... Jesus says in verse 7, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. You think that's great? 
It's not even close. They say there's a half a million earthquakes occur every year. A half a million. We live in a very shaky planet. Of those half a million, only 100,000 of them are felt. But again, a half a million of them are registered on the Richter scale. In the very end, all these quakes are going to be dwarfed by the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, in the middle, chapter 16, verses 18 to 20, says it's the, it is the greatest earthquake that has ever hit this earth. Revelation 16. So again, you see them in the signs, and it's, we live on a shaky planet, it's not getting any better, but wait till when the seal judgments, and the trumpet judgment, and the bowl judgment, and what has been the beginning of birth pangs will really be intensified. And then we have famines. And there will be famines and troubles. And Luke 21 adds plagues. And just think about all the plagues and terrors that have happened. Just example, one of the most famous, the Black Death of the 1300s in Europe. It says that the Black Death killed between, because again, they didn't take census back then, between 50 and 100 million people. It wiped out 60% of Europe. Just that one plague. The bubonic. But again, we have all these different plagues, smallpox, measles, typhus. They say the Mayan civilization was wiped out. One of the main reasons was not because of plagues, but because of famine. Because in that area, between the 9th and 11th century, they had a huge famine. You know, we think of famines. We think of the potato famine in Ireland. You know, that just wipes out thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And then, you, and then he says you have great signs from heaven. That, that would be fires and, and uh, heat, cold, flood, hurricanes, tornadoes. They estimate in China alone that they've had 1,800, let's go back to famines, 1,800 in one, one country. See, the reason I'm bringing these up is because I feel sometimes we're isolated from this. We just think, well, everything's kind of going along pretty good, you know. No, no, this is a very shaky planet. This, and it, exactly what Jesus told his disciples is happening, but it's, it is happening with greater and greater and greater intensity. Talk about famine, go to Africa. Now you say, but that's caused by man. So much of it is, but yet that's what, exactly what's happening. But he says this, that these are, the, these are the beginnings of sorrows, birth pangs. These are the beginning, verse 8. Beginning, what's well, the metaphor to birth pangs of a, of a woman you know, going to deliver? It's a, rep, a reference to um, her pains, you know. Uh, what, is they, what do they call Braxton Hicks, you know, they, and those are supposed to be false. And then, right, are they false pains? Is that correct? Ladies, don't get upset with me if I say something wrong here. But, you know, if you've had a child, you know, okay, so there's this, and then, and then it starts, right? And, and it gets, you know, they're this far apart, and they're not very intense, but then they start to get this far apart, and they get really intense, and then they get like this. And then she says, I hate you, because you're standing right beside me. No. <laughs> Honey, I love you. Just get away from me. Okay, the point is, is... Um, more and more intense, more and more powerful, right? That's exactly how this earth... And it's, in the final contractions are the great tribulation. Okay? You see that? All here, contractions. Then there's the tribulation, first three and a half years. There's still problems, death, destruction. The final, the bowls, and those are bang, 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 and it's like the final... Push! By the way, that's not the prize. The prize is at the very end of the Great Tribulation, and it says that the sun is darkened. By the way, when you have earthquakes and volcanoes going off, and the sky is completely, uh, has all this stuff in it, and the sun turns dark, and then what happens? Then, then, ladies, what happens at the end of the contractions? Baby is born. What happens at the end of the Great Tribulation? Jesus shows up. And he's going to be the light. I want you to get this. He's going to be the light and every eye will be on him because it was total pitch dark until he showed up. And he's returned after all that massive contractions had to happen on this earth. Well, let's, let's look at one more piece to this and that is the distress. Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves. Now he turns it on them. And he, and he 
three different categories. First of all, Jewish persecution. See, now again, you're talking about a group of disciples. One's going to be the betrayer, but they're just thinking, all right, you know, I mean, you're the king. You're going to set up the kingdom. Certainly things are going to get better. Oh, yeah, there might be some problems. Maybe that's just for a few years, maybe 40 days, maybe a few years. But look at what he says. For they will deliver you to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. Now, again, when he used the word synagogues, he's talking about Jewish persecution. Because it was in the synagogues, well, first of all, where the Jews were, but that's where cases were tried, and local judges were appointed there, and that's where the scourging took place. And so he's saying, listen, you think that you... See, you think because I'm here, you're going to get away from the suffering. No, no. They're going to take you. You're going to be beat. You're going to be the one that has to suffer. And we find that even with Paul. He said, five times by the Jews, I received 40 lashes minus one. And if you go through the book of Acts, by the way, up to this time, they hadn't had persecution. It, it was after the Spirit coming, Acts 2, and then you start reading the book of Acts, that the, the Jews turned against the Christians. I mean, again, uh, the whole process in Acts 4, 5, 8, you just go right down through. Jewish persecution. Then you have Gentile persecution, verse 9, second part. You will be brought before rulers and, and kings for my sake. Now, that's not Jew, that's Gentile. Jewish persecution, Gentile persecution. You're going to be hated. You are going to be hated for my sake, for a testimony. And that word testimony is where we get our word martyr. The testimony was so great, so solid, they even went to die. And they actually died for the faith. For the testimony, for my sake, for a testimony to them. In other words, you suffer, but then you're going to speak, and it's going to be a testimony to them. It's, see, we all, including first century, like to have it comfortable. So what does God do? He brings suffering into our life. He brings you into the court. And you have to you know, confess who you believe. Is it Jesus or is it another Jesus? See, that's the problem with the false teachers. Because they still say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But do you catch that word, inclusive? In other words, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you know, if you believe in uh, Islam, you can come in too. And if you believe, you know, if you don't even believe. No, no. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. It's exclusive. And that is why religion hates Christianity. Because it says he is the only way. And if you say, is that really true? I was, we'll have to start, we'll look at this a little bit more in detail. But let me give you one example. It's, it's been written many times this. Roman Catholicism has killed upwards to, of 50 million Christians because of their false religion. You go back to the Inquisitions, you go back, like example, Waldenese. Wald, Waldenese. 150,000 of them perished. 150,000, I mean, you just start thinking, 150,000, how, uh, how many people live in Hornell? Like seven or 8,000, is, is that correct? So that's like 20 Hornells just being wiped out. And, and you go right down through the French massacre, in three months, 100,000 people died. The Albigenes, 150,000. The Jesuits, in 30 years, 900,000 were killed by the Jesuit priests. You know, and you go on and on. And I was looking up torture last night. You know, you're like, wow, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Roman Catholic torture. And you know what I, I started reading about? And this is what's really sad. The Roman Catholic priests enjoyed it. See, they would say, well, I'm trying to get them to repent so they go to heaven. But when you have a person and you are torturing them with these unbelievable, horrific ways, they were enjoying it. Because the religious heart hates true Christianity. When you see a guy with a knife and he's in an orange suit and ready to behead, there, there is a, they are bloodthirsty. They hate what you stand for. We've got to get over this, that somehow the world is going to love you. Because you're going to be disappointed and frustrated and depressed if you think that. They hate you. And if anything, they're going to push you into the mold of saying, at least say this one thing, that there's more than one way to heaven than Jesus. And when you say no, that's when they want to hurt you. 
So the big picture is this. False religion has massacred Christians and continues to do it even to this day. John 7, verse 7, Jesus said this. This is why they hate me, because I testify that its works, that's the world's works, are evil. When you stand for truth, you're telling them you are false and what you're doing is evil, and that's what they hate you for. So they don't hate you, it's like verse 9 says, for my sake. I trust that you're walking with him, willing to suffer for him. I keep asking myself, am I really willing to suffer like this, Jesus? Well, he gives us three promises. I'm just going to have to... These are promises. These are positives. Okay, there's a lot of negatives happening in the world, but look at the positives. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The gospel is going to spread. What are you saying? All the suffering? Yep, and the gospel is still going to spread. Oh, praise God. Nothing's going to stop the gospel. Nothing will stop the gospel. Uh, the old church father, Tertullian, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When the martyrs die, it's like seed and it just keeps sprouting. And that's exactly what you see. The blood of the martyrs, seed of the church. The gospel is going to continue forward. The, the gospel is going to continue to conquer. That's the first promise. And we see this, by the way, all the way up to Revelation. And then there's just massive uh, persecution in Revelation. And yet, what do we see? People getting saved from every tongue and nation and tribe. Even in, the, even in the tribulation, the gospel is powerfully preached. What? Two witnesses, 144,000, an angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel. God is always gracious. God, our God is always gracious. Can't say that about the Islam God. By the way, you don't see this type of persecution happening in all these other religions. Oh, they fight each other, but I'm saying for the name of their leader? Mm -mm. In other words, these other religions don't have a fox's book of martyrs. Christianity does. How about the, the second promise, supernatural enablement? Look at verse 11. This is a real encouragement. I'm going to read this out of the New American. But when they arrest you, okay, they've arrested me, and deliver you, do not worry beforehand about what you are going to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. You ever say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know how I'm going to... Listen, it's the power of the Spirit of God in you that's going to be able to make you stand. Not you, not your own strength. And if you read the testimonies of Christians over the years, that's exactly what you see. They will stand and say and do things that were way beyond their ability. Why? The Spirit of God working in them. In other words, don't fear, because sometimes I think this, Lord, how would I be able to endure that? He says, don't worry about that. When you're there, I'll give you the grace. You don't have to worry about it right now. You just have to walk with me today. Who gives the power? Again, supernatural enablement. What? The Holy Spirit. But it is the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke 21 says this, I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Oh, they may kill you, but they can't resist it and refute it. It's in their heart what you're saying. I mean, in other words, it is hitting and cutting, but they are just willing to reject it. Now, before I give you the last promise, there's one more final. Jewish persecution, Gentile persecution. Now, this is the hardest of them all. Family betrayal. Brother will betray brother to death. And father is child, and, and, and a child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. See, there's got to be a greater allegiance to Christ than any other. That's why in Luke 14, he says, you've got to hate your father and mother and sisters and brothers. Well, you're supposed to love. You know, but in comparison to your love and loyalty, to me, they're secondary. You've got to have loyalty to Christ first if you're a believer, if you want to be a disciple of His. And look at the, last, the first part of verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. I mean, I cannot even imagine one of my children calling me in by the police and then they have me put to death because they called me in. Can you imagine that? See, in America, we don't think those terms. Oh, you know, it's a happy family all going to church. No, no. True Christianity says you stand up for Christ and truth some even in your own family are going to say you are odd, fanatical, and, at, and then when allowed to do it, and we don't even want you around. That is so, because your loyalty has to be to Christ first. So we have the promise, well, let's go back to promises. Gospel will be spread, verse 10. Supernatural enablement, that's a real big 
promise. And then look at verse 13, the last part of verse 13. This is a promise, but it's kind of like a backside of a warning. Heavenly hope. But he who endures to the end will be saved. What do you mean by saved? Heaven. He will be... Those who end, staying faithful to Christ, are the ones that are truly saved. That's what he's getting at. Luke 21 says this, By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, I've got to say this. He's not saying this, that you earn your salvation. He's not saying that. In other words, it's not, well, I have endured, therefore I made it to the end, I'm saved. He's not saying that you earn your salvation by endurance. Your endurance proves that you have the true saving faith from God. That's all he's saying. True saving faith will endure. So those who end by enduring show that, yes, I've got the true faith. Because weak, superficial faith uh, will throw in the towel away before the end. So it's not saying that you earn your salvation by endurance, and it, it doesn't mean this. You don't lose your salvation because of lack of endurance. When the heat of suffering and persecution comes, false believers, those who profess but do not possess Christ, will fall away. All he's saying is this. True, authentic, God-given faith will endure because the, it's, it's the Spirit of God who is providing the strength and the power to endure. Do you get the point? Do you see what I'm saying? Because this is the problem in American Christianity. You hear somebody say, I believe in Jesus. Oh, praise God, he's a believer. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this, that a true believer has the faith from God that's going to endure no matter what. It's the Spirit of God that gives you the strength and the power and you will finish to the end. You ever meet somebody? Oh, I was saved when I was five years old. I mean, they live like hell right now, but they were five. And and now when we preach their sermon, we're going to preach them into heaven. Because they were saved when they were five years old. Never lived for Christ, never endured for Christ, never named Christ. No, no. You know what they need? Evangelism. Because rewrite them off. Well, praise God, he's saved. No, those who endure to the end. Jewish persecution, Gentile persecution, even betrayal from the Father. They keep their eyes on Jesus. You are the one. You're the only hope. Totally exclusive. And that's why it says in Ephesians 4, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What? This faith is not of yourselves, it is a gift. The faith is a gift from God, given to a true believer, and because it's God's faith in the work of the believer, it's kind of like that disciple, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like there's no other person. And so no matter what happens, it's not that you go into persecution confident in the sense that I can do it on my own. Lord, I just know that you're the truth and I can't, I I cannot deny you. And Lord, I don't know what's going to come. And I might be one of those and you may be too. Kneeling with someone with a knife at your throat. But are you willing at that point to say, I give up Jesus? Because it's those who endure to the end, they're the ones that are going to be saved. A lot, of, a lot of persecution. I think a lot of hard times are going to be coming and will continue to come because the birth pangs are getting harder. Not the birth pangs in the world, I mean, in, the, in America. I'm not talking about America. People keep saying, well, America's going down, therefore Jesus is coming back. America has nothing to do with the plan. I mean, it's just, I'm talking about the world. More earthquakes, more great signs, more wars. It's the world that's having the contractions and they're becoming stronger and shorter. And, and so again, Christ is coming back and the question to you is, are, are you standing strong for Him? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and it's like this, I, I, was, I was damned and I knew my sin damned me and I know God was, uh, is holy and I realized that God the Father sent His Son as a sacrifice for me and I put my faith and hope and trust only in Him and He's the only Savior. And when I hear that black preacher up there saying, well, all these other ones are saying, no, that's not right. It's only Jesus. And I will stand with Jesus and I'll even die with Jesus. Even right now, I'll live for Jesus. Let's say that. Sometimes we say, well, you die for... No, no, let's live for him right now. But is that, what the, is that your salvation, let's say, experience? That you've put your hope and trust only in him and I want to walk with him because he's the only Savior and Lord. 
Or is it some other superficial thing? He gives me what I need and I have a prosperous life. That's prosperity theology. That, that's not saving faith. Saving faith says God gave it and we will continue on to the end because it was God that started the process. It's not our strength that's going to continue. It's going to be God's strength through us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we close by worshiping our Lord. If you're here and you never received Christ, then I would encourage you today to commit your life to Him as Savior and Lord. What does He say? Deny yourself. I can't do it, Lord. Take up your cross and follow Him. Receive Him. He will make you one of His children because you've received His sacrifice and what He's done on the cross, that He is the only way, the only Savior. You could be saved right where you're at if you've never received Him. Call out for, for Him. If you're a Christian... I would say this, if you're trying to save the planet, planet, stop it. It's a great waste of time. Now, if you want to, you know, recycle bottles, whatever. But please, please, I'm, I'm saying, because you're like the disciples that are looking at the temple and saying, whoa, what marvelous stones. And Jesus is going to tell you, you know what, it's all coming down, it's all going to be destroyed. Put your energies into eternal things. Your, your, neighbor needs to hear the gospel. Go to put your energy in eternal things, right? Amen. I, you know, we laugh at the earth thing, but I think we put, our, we put all our energy in things that are all going to burn up. He's already told us. Make sure you're putting your energy and your, your giftedness and your abilities in things that are truly going to matter and will be rewarded. And I think sometimes it's, it's the ploy of Satan to get you focused on something else. So, again, we need to evaluate our life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that your word is clear, that Christ's words to his disciples are precise. Uh, Lord, we expect that uh, your word is going to give us the, the, uh, a precise, clear picture, and that's what, exactly what's happened. And, uh, Lord, I pray that as believers, especially right here, that we would put our time in things that matter. We so easily can get distracted and waste time and really lose perspective. We get so frustrated what's going on in this world, and yet you told us there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. You told us that there's going to be famines and that they were going to be increasing. And Lord, help us now to just get encouragement and comfort and boldness by knowing that your word is continuing to go forth, that your spirit is going to empower us, and that we need to make sure that we are living lives that are pleasing to you, that we're truly saved, that we will finish the race. And Lord, we know that if it's the faith given by you, that we will finish. And we thank you for that. That our salvation and our endurance is not dependent upon our strength, but yours. And so we ask that we live in light of these eternal values in Christ's name. Amen.